Hello, everyone. I'm Lee Green, and welcome to the Stairway to CEO podcast. It's my mission to bring you a real, honest, and unfiltered interview with top business leaders in all walks of life. So we'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Stairway to CEO podcast. I'm your host, Lee Green, and today I'm in San Francisco talking to Sahil Jain, who is the co-founder and CEO of AdStage. We are here at the AdStage office, and just to give you some background as to what AdStage is... AdStage is an advertising technology company that allows businesses to better understand and consolidate all of the data from their online ad spend across multiple networks in one place, basically enabling paid marketers to understand the business impact of all their campaigns. I met with Sahil a few years ago through one of our mutual angel investors, and it's always fun to reconnect with him when I'm in town, attending either the launch festival or launch scale events. This year, I'm here in San Francisco attending launch scale, which I highly recommend checking out if you're a founder, investor, or aspiring entrepreneur. Jason Calicanis always hosts an incredible event that you should know about. In this episode, Sahil is going to share his story about how he dropped out of high school to start working at Yahoo at 7 17 years old to launching his first company, Trigger.io, and then raising $1.5 million in funding within the first month of incorporating AdStage. It's a really interesting story. I hope you enjoy this inspiring episode. And if you like what you hear, please feel free to leave us a review. All right, Sahil, thank you so much for uh, being on the show today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So let's just get started um, right from the very beginning. Let's, where are you from? Do you have siblings? What did your parents do? Sure. Um, so I was born in Portland, Oregon. I'm Indian in descent. My parents were both born in India, in northern India. My dad was born in Rajasthan. My mom was born in Delhi. And so they immigrated over and they had us. I have two older sisters. Um, one is a doctor. She's actually uh, finishing up her fellowship at MGH at Harvard. Mm. And then my other sister is my oldest sister. So I'm the youngest. My oldest sister, Neha, is the world traveler. She also actually launched a company at Launch Festival. Right. Um, I met her at launch. You did meet her. Yeah. yeah. So, awesome. um, so Neha's done that. She's worked at the UN for the government. She's done all sorts of things. And then myself in the tech world following kind of, I guess, in my dad's footsteps. Who He was also an entrepreneur in the tech world in the telecom industry. Nice. Yeah. What did he do? So he started, he used to scold us by giving us what was it called back then? He used to call it like the network speech. Like when we were doing things, you know, we were bad kids, whatever. He'd be like, no, dad, don't do it. You know, the typical everyone has that story. And his was about the internet. And so he actually, his first, he started one of the first telecom companies in the United States. And they specifically were focused on fiber optics. And so mm-hmm. they were laying down some of the first fiber wires throughout the United States to power the internet. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so he, he was a founder, the CEO raised $190 million and sold the company for over a few billion, but he's still a village kid. He grew up in a village in India and he's a total like worse than slumbug millionaire. He had two pairs of clothes until he was, you know, eight years old. He didn't know what a door was, but he and his family, they just, you know, they worked from the bottom up. And my dad, my grandpa was also an entrepreneur. He started a company selling hay, Mm -hmm. but because, you know, back then very, very popular, we come from like a, actually like a royal family, the royal descendant, like a, there was a, you know, Rajasthan's land of the kings. And Are you saying you're a prince? I'm maybe saying <laughs> But, uh, you know, and so when the land was split up, you know, a couple like villages were divvied out to a bunch of different people. And so my family, I guess, is one of those. And we had this little village in India, which I'm actually going to visit. I haven't been to India in about 16 years. And I'm going back in a couple, maybe in a month and a half. I'm going with my dad back to the village. It's changed a lot since then, I'm sure. But um, but basically, we had all these houses. They're called like palaces, but they're really called havelis in Hindi. And we actually donated all the havelis we had to create the first schools for women and children in Rajasthan because they historically were not able to get, they're not allowed to get educations. So to this day, actually, our old haveli, which was the big one, is still a school for women, which is pretty cool. So that's, that's kind of awesome. like the upbringing. You know, he's a village kid. He still steals the, you know, the basketball from the gym. <laughs> he wears $2 jeans, you know. Yeah. Sales rack, and so I think he rubbed off a lot on me. 
Cool. So you were growing up in, you said Oregon, right? Mm -hmm. And then you, did you stay, how long were you there? Yeah, so I was um, was born in Portland, Oregon. I was there until I was eight. Mm -hmm. And then I moved to Sao Paulo, Brazil. Um, And I lived in Brazil for a few years. And then I moved to Houston, Texas. And I was only in Houston for a year, thankfully. And then we moved to California. And so we moved around a lot. And it was all because of my dad's various jobs. And he started a couple of different companies. And, uh, and yeah, I went to, went to high school, junior high, high school, everything in the Bay Area. I even ended up going to college after kind of leaving high school. I went to college uh, at UC Berkeley for a bit before leaving you know, Cal as well. So that's kind of where we've moved around and lived. But you dropped out of high school, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. let's go into that. How and why did you drop out of high school? Yeah, so my vocational background is I was, so my first job was actually prior to the reason why I dropped out of high school. So my first job was um, in the professional video game industry. So before, now everyone calls it esports. We didn't call it that back then. We just said we're going to play video games for money. And so I grew up uh, playing video games for money, and I was playing a game called Counter-Strike, uh, and not making a ton of money, but some kids were. Some kids were making a couple hundred thousand dollars a year playing video games. But I was making, you know, a couple hundred bucks, you know, a week or a month. And I was buying like a lot of, you know, Wingstop or something, you know, back then, right? As you do when you're in high school. And so, um, so that was my first job. And that got me into kind of the technology world. I was building my computers and all that kind of techie, nerdy stuff. And then one summer after my junior year of high school, so I went to an all guys Jesuit college prep school and we, you know, played soccer and ran cross country, your typical stuff. And I was a pretty good student too, but everyone was, everyone was a good student. Everyone was playing sports. So there was no real way to like stand out. So after my junior year of high school during the summer, uh, one of my parents, I think it was a cousin or close friend, family friend came over to our house and he was an engineering manager at Yahoo. And this is back in 2007. So Yahoo was still actually doing pretty well. And so he came over and my mom was really annoyed that I was just playing video games every day. And so I think she kind of pitched him like, hey, do you have like even an internship? Like he'll just do it. Just I'll send him there. And so he actually uh, brought me into Yahoo and I did an interview for some sort of internship, but I was actually underage. And I don't know if that got lost in the How shuffle. I was 17. Mm-hmm. And you're not supposed to work there until you're about like 18, right? Mm-hmm. As a proper adult. And so uh, they interviewed me for a QA role, quality assurance role, which is really like a testing role. And it was a very, very low in the totem pole role. It was a black box QA role. So my job was going to be, this was Yahoo Mobile specifically. And so my job was I had a device cabinet of 200 devices and I was going to test the Yahoo application on all those devices. And so, yeah, they, you know, they hired me. So as an intern, I started there and on my first day, I found this like huge bug. And it was a really simple to me as like, you know, I was a younger demographic than a lot of the people there. And so I use mobile and I, back then, this is before iOS and Android were even out. So I was using mobile more frequently, I think, than a lot of folks there. I don't know what it was, but I found a P1, like they're about to ship this new Yahoo homepage live. And I, my first day there, I was just clicking around and I broke something. And it was this huge showstopper. And so everyone found out about me. They're like, why are we not pushing this live? What happened? Yeah, like, who's this kid? <laughs> yeah, this like, and they were like, this kid found like a bug right. and we can't ship live with this bug. And so that was kind of like how I got many famous very quickly, not for like great reasons, but also, you know, because it frustrated people. But then about my, my second or third week there, I um, taught myself how to code and I was coding in Perl, which was like our test automation language that we were using back then and moved into more of like a platform and test automation engineering role. And then my fifth or sixth week there, I pitched this new business idea to basically bring the professional video game industry into Yahoo, like Yahoo Sports. So Yahoo mm-hmm. has Yahoo Sports, which some of us are very familiar with. But, and I thought that gaming would become a sport. And I actually still have the pitch deck to this day, like 10, 11 years later. It was my first time doing a corporate meeting. I didn't know how to do it. The deck was 50, 60 slides long, right? It took like an hour and a half to get through. And I randomly cold emailed the GM of Yahoo Sports. His name is Ben Strong at the time. And the GM of Yahoo Games um, named Kyle Laughlin. So you're 17 emailing this person. Yeah, I just, I never learned hierarchy and I never learned like from my dad because I was always had like a CEO at my house. And so, right. and we all speak, you know, the one thing I'll, I'll give my parents credit for a lot of things, but one of the things I really think affected our growth and development as kids is they never treat us as kids. Mm-hmm. I mean, our conversations at the dinner table are not, hey, honey, how was your day? You know, how was work? They're about politics, religion, philosophy, always. Um, and so we also never learn like the rules. You know, we've crossed some lines as a family that we probably shouldn't have. Like we all cursed really young and we, you know, we did all those kinds of things that you shouldn't see happen. But in any case, I think it was net positive in general. 
And so, yeah, I just had this idea and I randomly cold emailed people. And, and that happened later in my career too at other big companies and it got me in a lot of trouble, but didn't even then I didn't really care too much. And so I emailed these guys and they said, hey, yeah, we'll take the meeting. And I, I really had never done a meeting before. So I was super nervous. I had my headphones in. I think we didn't have iPads back then. We had like MP3 players. And I was just listening to music really loud and trying to get psyched up for it. And so I went to this meeting. They didn't fall asleep. They liked it. And they asked me to stay and work on it full time. So I started working on um, basically creating the first like application on the Yahoo platform for professional gaming, professional video games. So you're 17 in high school and they want you to work full time. And you're like, how am I going to do that being a full time student? Yeah. So I, it was pretty clear to me. Like, I was totally fine dropping out of high school. Because like for me, I was, you know, g- senior year is really just a fun year. I had a 4.2 GPA. I wasn't like I was a bad kid, but I was there was like an identity crisis, I think. I was just like every other kid at the school, um, some of my closest friends still from there. So it wasn't like an issue from that perspective, but it was just, there was no clear way to stand out. So yeah, so they, they said, hey, would you want to stay on full time at the end of my, at the summer? And I was making like really good money as a kid back then. I was making like 25 bucks an hour, which is like when you're that right. young. So like, re- everyone else is like babysitting for $10 yeah. an hour, maybe. Right? Yeah, exactly. And I was like at a cool company and I was like, you know, an engineer. And so, um, yeah, so I, I asked, I talked to my dad, I went home, spoke with my dad and my mom and I said, Hey guys, like, I'd really like to pursue this. And again, another good thing that they did, they, they let me do it. Um, uh, my dad was very fine with it and he's like, he'll figure it out. Like we'll figure out night school or we'll do something. Mm-hmm. My mom was definitely not super supportive. Mm-hmm. And I actually went to, so in Indians, like we have like family friend parties and we went to these, you know, we always go to like a bunch of family friend parties every year. And so we went to one for Christmas and this was around Christmas time. And I love messing with my parents' friends because like for them, they all kind of like, they're all very sweet, very smart, very affluent, but they all like love to show off about their kids. And I hated that. I really didn't like that they did that because like, you know, they got into this school and this school and whatever. And I, I just didn't like, we, we, our families never really liked that. So I went there and all the aunties and uncles were asking me like, hey, so how's, how's school? Are you excited to go back? And I just kind of like wanted to mess with them. So I was like, well, I actually dropped out. And I didn't tell them why, I just paused. And this really is before wanted, you actually did? You just wanted to see their reaction? I think this might've been right after I had, I had done it, but I really just wanted to like mess with them. And so I did and they all started freaking out and the aunties were yelling at my mom and like, why are you letting him do that? And then I told them why. And I think a lot of the uncles had like, a lot of them were founders and whatnot. And so I think they, like some of them kind of got it. My dad was trying to like kind of console that side of it. A lot of the aunties, I think were a little bit more traditional and they're like, his, his life is over. Why are you doing this? He's leaving school. How is he ever going to get into college? So anyway, so my parents were fairly supportive. Um, I, you know, they said, okay, I said, I'll finish my high school credits somehow. But there was logistical problems. Like I wasn't even 18, so I couldn't even go to adult school. Like I wasn't allowed to go to an adult school. So I had to get the Fremont Unified School District to approve it. And they're like, well, you're not a drug addict. You're not like incarcerated. Why are you doing this? <laughs> and so anyways, long story short, very long story. I dropped out. I stayed at Yahoo for a year and a half. And I was working as an engineer. Got to work on the side project as well. And then, and I agreed to my parents that I would apply to college, but I didn't know if I was going to go and they were supportive of me not going if I didn't want to, but I decided to apply and I applied for a philosophy. So studying philosophy and economics. And so not vocational training because I already had a job, mm-hmm. something a little bit more to like expand my mind and enjoy going to school. I think you should go to school to really like grow up and mature, mm-hmm. not necessarily go for like vocational training. Mm-hmm. And so, so yeah, so I pleased my parents that way. So I did, I did apply to school. I did apply to college and fortunately got in. So I went to UC Berkeley. And how long did that last? I dropped out of Berkeley when I was 19 during my sophomore year. <laughs> so you dropped out twice yeah. from high school and then again in college. Yeah. That's hilarious. It did. So tell me about college and why Why did you drop out <laughs> that time? So um, obviously going working full time mm-hmm. uh, back into school was really hard. I actually got an NYU as well. And I, I, New York's my favorite city in the world. I spent a lot of time there and I was going to go to NYU. But then I decided that I wanted, because of Yahoo, they actually were open to me staying on while I went to college. And so that was pretty attractive and they're based here in the Bay Area. So I ended up going to Berkeley and I was still working for Yahoo. I eventually decided I wanted to focus on school and really give it a shot. And so I, so I left Yahoo. And then while I was at Yahoo, it was very hard to go from working full-time back into school. And so I started getting distracted. I worked at a magazine company here in San Francisco called Hartle Media. They helped produce Spin Music Magazine, uh, California Home and Design, and 7 by 7 San Francisco and whatnot. And I kind of pitched them on like digital because this is when magazines were all starting to die, print. And so they need to figure out like what's a mobile app and how should we build one? So I kept getting myself involved in all these little side projects and trying to find a way to work. I really wanted to always just be working. Mm-hmm. So it just got the best of me. And I think 
during my sophomore year, a lot of my friends who were at Yahoo left Yahoo and joined AOL. AOL had just spun back out of Time Warner. And so a lot of friends kind of, they just messaged me and said, hey, we're going to AOL now. Would you be interested in the role? And so I went there and I actually pitched, instead of going to my interview, I actually, so I was supposed to go in for this really long interview. And I decided that the weekend before the interview, I was going to uh, mock up a new product that I think AOL should build. And I'm not going to let them interview me. I'm going to pitch them a new product. Mm. And so it was a terrible name. It's called AOL Splat. But it basically was a, it was a cool idea. It was, it was a news aggregator because AOL owned all these different news properties. And they had a, this is before like, the pulses of the world and a lot of the, like the flipboards of the world. This is well before that. Mm -hmm. And so I went into my interview and pitched them on this new thing called AOL splat or whatever, this news thing. And they liked it. And so they offered me a job and I immediately took it. I didn't want to stay in school any longer. So that's how I last, I landed at AOL. Okay. So you are how old at this time? You're at AOL. I was um, 19 at the time. And I, my role was a very kind of ambiguous role. It's called strategic initiatives. But a very cool part about my role that was- sounds so fancy for such a young person. Yeah, it was great. I was like, um, I was definitely fairly high up. So mm-hmm. Brad Garlinghouse, who actually is now, the, I think the CEO of Ripple, uh, one of the cryptocurrencies companies, but he was running, he was a president of AOL and he had a guy under him that was running strategic initiatives, which is like special projects, which was really appealing to me. And so I was working for that guy under him. So I was just right, I was basically reporting into Brad and um, a big part of my job that was pretty cool was they had they said Saha we have a you know we have a ten to thirty million dollar like small budget to start doing some acquires. This is before acquires like super popular at least in the media. Mm-hmm. And he's like, why don't you help us like when with our first meetings like when we're meeting these companies, getting to know them, and in the mail and mobile space. So I was I was working for AOL Consumer Applications. So if we all remember AIM. Oh right? yeah. Yeah. Like, Running home after high school to put up an away message yeah. and like look really cool. <laughs> Chat with everyone you just saw. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so I worked for the consumer applications group, uh, mail, mobile, chat. And so we were trying to look at small companies for us to buy in that space. And which was really fun because I was essentially doing like M&A and, you know, corp dev, I guess is what you call it. And I got to meet all these young founders and startups. Mm-hmm. And I remember that this one founder came in, his name is Darian Shirazi. And he runs a company now called Radius, uh, but it used to be called like Fwix. And he came in and he was, um, he was just like so smart. He was so young and he was just so ridiculously smart compared to the people in the room. And I was like, I was like in a very positive way, jealous of him. I was like, oh my God, I have to be doing what he's doing on this side of the table. So I ended up leaving and that's how I met Y Combinator and a bunch of the accelerators because we looked at a lot of YC companies as potential acquisitions. And so two of the founders that I met who just graduated from YC were looking for a business founder. And so I, I hit them up and I said, hey, you know, are you guys interested in uh, a business co-founder? And then the one dirty secret I'll tell you, though, about the AOL story was I actually got fired from AOL. Really? Why? So it was actually kind of what we spoke about before. So and I'm very proud of like, I'm very happy that I was fired. You seem very uh, proud. Yeah, I'm totally OK <laughs> with it. I think it's, it's like I wear it on my sleeve like a badge of honor. Yeah. It was one of those political things. There was like there was, you know, I went to what, you know, we, I went to an event. The CEO of AOL was a really cool guy named Tim Armstrong. He took an interest in my ideas, I think. And so I did what I did at Yahoo, which is I, sold, I sent him an email because mm-hmm. he asked me to send him an email. And um, I got in a lot of trouble for not CCing my boss on an email. Oh, wow. And that's why. Oh, wow. That's it. And it was actually really bad. It was very, very abusive. It was very like every day I came into the office, it was like, what are you doing? You can't, you know, why didn't you send, you know, why didn't you put us on CC? It was crazy. Mm-hmm. I, I left the AO office crying in tears four times in the span of two weeks. And which was like nuts to me. Mm-hmm. And so, and despite me telling my boss, who was about 3x my age, hey, let's make it water the bridge. I get it. It's not a big deal. And by the way, Tim at the time actually really liked what I sent him. Mm-hmm. And so, anyway, so yeah, I got fired. Um, and then I hit up just a few of the founders that I met and started doing the startup thing. What was the startup? So, the company was called Trigger.io. At the time I joined, it was called WebMind. But basically, what we were doing is we were building, you know, instead of a browser, you have browser extensions. Mm-hmm. So we built a platform that made it really easy to build browser extensions across the different browsers. Because across Chrome or Firefox or Safari or Internet Explorer, it's very hard to build an application that works on all of them. Mm-hmm. From You have to use these different code bases. We then rebranded a Trigger.io and we did the same thing, but for mobile applications. So you could build your mobile application once in web technologies, like HTML5 and JavaScript. And then from that same code, you could generate versions for iOS, Apple, and Android. So you had to build that, you kind of build once to play anywhere, which is like an old school, like I think Oracle, Cisco mantra. And so, and then we raised more money for Trigger. We raised about two and a half million bucks, nothing crazy. It was all basically JavaScript engineers. 
But yeah, so that was my first company. And I was, uh, I was 20 at the time when we started the company and was there for about two years before resigning and starting AdStage. Interesting. So what were some of your lessons learned in that experience, your first time as CEO, right? So no, so actually at Trigger, I wasn't a CEO. So oh. Trigger, I was, um, I was a co-founder, but I was a chief marketing officer, but of a 14-person company. So mm-hmm. I don't really know if that holds too much weight. But basically my job was as the business guy. So I was doing everything, marketing, sales, business development. And then the CEO and the CTO, my co-founders, were both engineers. And so I learned a lot of things from that company. I won, I guess I learned to love the startup world. And I really learned to love working incredibly hard for not very much money, but like that high, super high risk, you know, high reward sort of situation. And, um, and I enjoyed the pace. I like all the kind of basics that everyone tries to sell you on about startups. I think I really did learn to love those things. Mm-hmm. I think I also learned that it's really important who you start a company with. And it's really important to pick your founders properly and people who you get along with philosophically as well as just in general. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean they have to be similar. In fact, my co-founder and I today of AdStage are very different, um, but like perfectly different. So I think I learned, you know, learned a lot of those things. I learned, you know, I came up with the idea for AdStage when I was at my last company. And so that was probably the most prized possession that, you know, I left with. Yeah. So how did that come about? So as you know, AdStage is a platform that basically, very simply put, brings all of your ad data. So if you're running ads on Google, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and so on, and you want to bring all that data in one place, you can analyze which network's probably better or worse. You can use AdStage to do that. Mm-hmm. And so I, a year into my job at Trigger, which is about like eight years ago now, eight and a half years ago, I started kicking off our first ad campaigns. And I have never run an ad campaign prior. And I very, you know, it wasn't just Google anymore. Their Facebook ads were out, LinkedIn ads were out, Twitter ads were in beta. There were all these different places to put our dollars. And I learned very quickly that it was very hard to answer very simple questions of which channels performing better or worse. Is it Google ads or Facebook ads? And that problem has actually gotten a lot harder to, you know, for a good reason, it's gotten even harder to answer that question. Because now as marketers, we have access to even more data further down the funnel. Like when you click on an ad, you don't just care that you got a click or a see, you know, click through rate or whatever. You care if it eventually turns into a closed one sale in Salesforce. But those, that data doesn't talk to one another. Salesforce data lives in Salesforce. Your ad data lives in the ad channels. So anyway, so the idea, the very simple idea of being able to prove which channel is working or not and then being able to optimize around that was kind of the impetus for starting AdStage. So I sat on the idea for about a year. So it was that you know, trigger for about two years. And then at the end, you know, I had reached out to an investor actually at the launch festival, not mm-hmm. the one where I launched at the year before. Okay. And an investor came by our booth. So I was at a booth for Trigger. And um, I kind of pitched him on the idea. I was like, hey, I have this idea for this like ad company. Were your co-founders with you? Uh, I didn't have a co-founder yet. Well, I mean, from oh, those, Trigger, no. you're like well, they were somewhere. a totally different company. <laughs> they were at the conference, but they were somewhere. But I was just, yeah, I mean, I was just curious. Yeah. I was like, I, I had always wanted to be a CEO and always wanted to run my own business. And, you know, Trigger was fine. It was a great company in some respects. And I think mm-hmm. in other respects, it was a really challenging company. And so, but I just was kind of feeling the waters out, right? And so I, I spoke to this guy named Dave Samuel, who runs Freestyle Capital. And I just said, hey, I have this idea and I would love to run it. Mm-hmm. And then another good friend of mine, Owen, who's actually the CEO of Intercom, pretty well-known company. He took me, he's an Irish guy, a really funny guy. He took me out to a bar. I had just turned 21 and we were having Irish cider. And he's like, and I told him that, hey, I had this conversation with Dave. And Dave said that if I resign, he'd give me $500,000 to start ad stage. That's awesome. And, um, and I was like, shoot, like, should I do this or not? And Owen was like, you know, typical Irish guy. He's like, you should fucking do it. And you shouldn't, you know, I would love to see what a 21 year old can do with a million bucks. And so that next day after my meeting with Owen, um, or like drink with Owen, I went and I resigned from trigger. I just said, I have to pursue this. Yeah. And so May 2012, 10 days after I resigned from trigger, I officially started ad stage. We incorporated and then I had met my co-founder a few months prior and we were getting to know one another and yeah, started ad stage. Awesome. So you raised around, I think, pretty early on without mm-hmm. like anything. But was there something? What else did you do to validate the concept? No, we got, I mean, very honestly, we, got, we were very lucky. I think we, we raised a ton of capital. with we, we had nothing. We had an idea. We had myself and my co-founder and CTO, Jason. And we had a really, really ugly like 10 slide pitch deck. And that's it. And I just went and got a ton of no's and I got a few yeses and and I think, you know, the climate was a little different back then, like the investment climate in 2012, people were still giving money to very early, very, very early ideas that don't have any revenue or traction. And mm-hmm. frankly, we, even then though, we didn't even have a product. We had like literally nothing, but I don't know. I think that the investors, I think they liked us. 
as founders. And I think they were really not investing so much on the ideas, they were investing on like the people. Mm-hmm. And they just, I think from what, at least this is just what they told me is they really put a bet on myself and Jason, um, yeah. that we build something of value. And so, yeah, we raised around like 20 days after we started the company, we basically closed our first round, which eventually turned into about a two and a half million dollar round over the course of a few months. And then um, I think in 2014, so two years later, we raised a six and a quarter million dollar series A and you know, so on and so forth. And now here we are. We haven't raised too much. We've raised about 14 million over the course of like six and a half years. Wow. Yeah. And how many employees do you have now? We're at about 27 or so. So still a fairly small, yeah. but not like too tiny. How is it organized? Like how many engineers and what do you outsource versus keep internally? Yeah, um, we don't believe in outsourcing. So from the very beginning, we that was something that I was really not a big fan of. Not to say it doesn't work, but I think if you outsource things like development, I think you should have someone in that location, like a founder, someone very senior, because it can create a lot of different issues and the quality level is a little bit hard to you know ensure that it's very high quality, but it depends. It just depends on the relationship. So for us, I always believed in creating asset value in our company. So instead of outsourcing, if I hire engineers, if we ever want to sell the company or we want to raise money, they'll see it as asset value that we own. If you outsource it, you don't own that asset value. Mm-hmm. And so, and I think the most, one of the most valuable assets of a company, if not the most valuable, is the people. Right. So our distribution is pretty much like half engineering and half at the moment like business, which is marketing, sales, customer success, and like just go to market in general. And then the engineering side is just a variety of, you know, basically full stack engineers. And then we've kind of allocated them appropriately to the different projects or different products that we have that we've built. Yeah. So tell me about like, um, without obviously mentioning names, like an HR nightmare or like some sort of learning experience that you've had. So for, I'll preface that we've been very fortunate. After six and a half years, we haven't had too many terrors. We have had all sorts of odd things happen, as any company will have. We've had our fair share of really bad apples. We've had super toxic employees that create a lot of collateral damage. And then we've had some really, really amazing people that mm-hmm. have improved the company dramatically. I think from an HR side, yeah, it's probably not it's probably best I don't get into some of them. But we've, you know, we've had your typical, I think we've just I think the issue is not so much the individuals. In some cases it probably was. It's more so like when you get a a group of people together, what's created between it's not so much the fault of the people, but it's the thing that's created between them. Like if you're in, even if you're in a like, you know, relationship with your significant other, whenever you fight, I think we have a tendency to blame the other person, Mm -hmm. but really what's to blame is the thing, this like amorphous thing that's created between them, the relationship itself. And I think that when you build a company, you're an organization of a bunch of different individuals. And so you're going to have your typical, your fights, your issues, you know, people are going to hold grudges. People are going to have just bad days and they come in and they bring their bad day with them. And all of those, we've experienced every single one of those. And they've had varying effects on the business itself, including you know, myself and my co-founder. We often remind ourselves that if we're having a really bad day, we can't bring it in with us. Right. We have to have a smile on our face. And essentially one of the biggest lessons I've learned as a founder too is like my emotions directly impact the business. If I'm anxious, the business will be anxious. If I'm happy, they'll be happy. If I'm sad, a lot of people, will, at least maybe they won't be sad, but they'll, they'll sense it from me and it will affect them negatively. So controlling that has been very important. Mm-hmm. Um, something we spent a lot of time on. And how do you work on that for yourself? How do you stay consistent and persistent and patient and all those things you need to be a good leader? Mm-hmm. We have gone, we've made a lot of mistakes. I know that sounds, that's probably very cliche, but it's also a truism, I think. So we've, we've made quite a few mistakes where we haven't protected our emotions and we've seen the damage that it causes or the issues that it causes and leads to. In order to improve from that, you have to be relatively introspective, I think. Uh, You have to speak, my co-founder and I, we go out and get lunch together all the time or we're very close friends. I was in his wedding a few months ago and I'm very fortunate to have him in my life too. And so we've been very close. We talk, we give each other feedback. We talk about things that frustrate us or things that excite us. And through that kind of open discourse, but as well as like our own introspection, we've learned when we've made mistakes and we've, we've acknowledged when we probably didn't do what we should have done mm-hmm. or we made a, you know, we said something we shouldn't have said, for example. Mm-hmm. And I think being willing and vulnerable and open to those types of conversations has been really, really valuable. And mm-hmm. it's stopped us from making even bigger issues or bigger mistakes. So I think that's probably just like highly introspective, very reflective and very open to not so much feedback, but just like conversations about 
how things are going, what we've done well, what we haven't done well. Yeah. And so how do you hire the right people? What's your process and how do you think about hiring or recruiting? Yeah, it's a good question. And especially in Silicon Valley where we're paying kids, you know, like 120 to 140K right, right. out of college, <laughs> which is absurd. So for hiring, I still spend a lot of time on hiring. So I'll say that after six and a half years, I have a tab in my inbox that's a hiring tab and it has over 8,000 emails sent. So I've directly sent out, you know, I've sent, I've spent a ton of time and that's hiring across the entire business, whether it's engineering, whether it's, you know, design, whether it's product, whether it's customer success or sales. And so I do think your founders, I think the culture of your founders trickles down into your company, whether you like it or not, mm-hmm. it's some sort of combination from them. I think hiring best practices also come from them. I think they should have a very, very strong hold on hiring, especially until you get to where you're really, really big. Basically you should protect hiring, you know, as much as you possibly can. We actually had a, an engineering manager from Square come in. We have these things called lunch and learns and we bring people, outside folks in to come give us talks and whatnot. We've had some really cool people. Nice. And we had this engineering manager from Square uh, come in and he had six slides of like tips to grow your business quickly, right? Something like that. And four out of the six slides had just said hiring. And I think we, we always hear about this at the conferences we go to, right. when we talk to investors or mentors, hiring is your most important job mm-hmm. as a founder and as a leader and hiring the right people. And so as we've progressed over six and a half years, we've gotten better at identifying who may not be a good fit. It's still very hard to find out who exactly is going to be a great fit, but you can at least start to now remove people from the process that you know just will not be a good fit and won't be successful in the organization we've created. And how do you do that though? How do you know someone's the right fit? We do a lot of quantitative and qualitative measuring. So we have, when you come in for an interview, there's a variety of different steps. There's a project there's always a project on the business side. There's always a take home project that will test a variety of different skills and characteristics. So we always have a phone screen and typically the phone screen will be with me mm-hmm. on the business side now. And on the engineering side, it'll be with my co-founder and CTO or our director of engineering. So you don't just have a phone screen with like a recruiter or something. Mm-hmm. And so once we have that phone screen and if we like them, then we, on the engineering side, we have a technical test that we send them on the business side uh, we have a follow-up conversation with the hiring managers, whoever the hiring manager is. And then after that, on the engineering side, we'll bring them in for a full day of interviews, essentially with many people from the team. Every At the moment at our size, every engineer pretty much will meet with a candidate if they progress through the process and tranches. On the business side, it's pretty similar. So most business roles are cross-departmental. If you're marketing, you're going to have to meet people from sales. You're going to have to meet people from customer success, even from engineering, because you're going to work with all of them. And uh, on the business side, we'll then give a take-home project. So there's a lot of like qualitative and quantitative things that you have to hit in order to be interesting as a candidate to us. Mm-hmm. And we also want the candidate to get to know us very well mm-hmm. to make sure that they think we're going to be a good fit. Mm-hmm. We have a spreadsheet that actually lists out all the different characteristics that we're hiring for. And all the interviewers will write in their scores for every one of those characteristics and it'll spit out a weighted average. And that's the quantitative side, right? And then we'll also just go around and rate them one through five. If anyone gives a two or below, it's an automatic veto. So if you have 10 people doing the interview, if one of the people give a two or below, we'll veto the candidate entirely. And this way you have a lot of accountability across the entire organization and you have people who are all bought into building a really, really strong organization. Mm-hmm. And very infrequently do we ever hire someone who's even got like a three. Yeah. Right? So, so that gives our team feels very empowered that they can really affect who is here. Right. And control kind of the culture that we've built and we add to. And I think that's been a big part of our success in hiring a, a really special team. Yeah. And you guys do things like have hackathons, which I think you're having one tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have two hackathons a year. They're two days. We, we have like food and business and engineering all get involved. And yeah, it's a lot of fun. And so what's the kind of purpose of doing that and why? It's one of those things that has been part of like technology culture for I think quite a while. And it's, it's a lot of fun. I, I really believe in getting away from your day-to-day tasks to be able to let your mind kind of just expand and work on something different. I think mm-hmm. it actually is super beneficial for the company. Mm-hmm. We've had a lot of hackathon projects that have turned into products that we've launched, but you don't have to work on something that's necessarily a product that will launch or something that's directly ad stage related. Mm-hmm. It can be, you know, we do hope it like, it can be a cultural project. It could be building furniture in the office of like something new that we want to have here. It could be, I think one of the teams this time may be building something that will, it'll be like a sign, like a, like a light up sign built for the customer success team, but it's powered by the back end of our engineering deploy system. So if there's a bug that mm-hmm. goes live, 
it'll flash so the customer success team knows something's like broken. Oh my gosh, that's awesome. So like little things like that are really yeah. fun and, and we give awards out at the end and it's just a great cultural moment for the company. Yeah. So so that's why we like it. That's awesome. So let's talk about fundraising. Mm-hmm. You know, fundraising can be pretty crazy. What are some of the craziest experiences you've had, things that you've said in meetings, things they've said to you mm-hmm. in meetings? How many no's have you gotten? You know, let's talk about that. Yeah. Okay. So I've gotten tons of no's. I can't even count. Uh, I've met with hundreds and hundreds of VCs and investors alike, and I've gotten tons of no's. That's just very standard fare. Mm-hmm. And I've learned to just, it doesn't matter. They just roll off at this point. Right. Yeah. And that's super important. My first few, I was like down in the dumps, like totally lost motivation. And I've been very fortunate to surround myself with people who don't let me take no for an answer. And, you know, they make sure that they push me back out. Some fun stories. So during, I think it was our series A, I met one of the founders of Android and he was a really nice guy and he liked what we were doing and he was working at Google Ventures. Mm -hmm. And I'll name drop because I only name drop when I I would tell them this to their face, uh, essentially. And so I went into the, so we went through a couple rounds and it was really good. And I went to the partner meeting at Google Ventures. So this is like, usually you get to like the last stage, it's a partner meeting you meet the person who brought you in will be there as your sponsor. And then you meet like the entire Ventures team, Mm -hmm. right? And Google Ventures is a huge. So their entire yeah. Ventures team is like 25 people. Yeah. And half of their team is healthcare focused, which is like not at all related to our business. Right. And then the other half is like technology. And they have these people called like specialists. They have like a design team, an engineering team, and they're supposed to be value add. So if they if you take money from them, you'll have like external design resources or engineering resources that can help advise you, which all sounds really great in theory. And I'm sure it is. Mm-hmm. So we're in this meeting and I was, you know, pitching the product and the company, whatever. And we're, again, we're in the advertising business. And so I got done with it. And we had one guy, really, really young guy. I think he was probably trying to make a name for himself. I'm actually pretty certain he was. He had a really famous mother. And so I think that, I don't know what it was. Like, it it just seemed like now I'm a little older. And so I'm just wondering if he was like in the weird shadow thing. He's trying to get out of the shadow. And and honestly, it comes, this sounds ridiculous, but this is how, it all comes down to this kind of stuff. It's not like the, the numbers. It's not all the quantitative stuff. I always tell people that if you're trying to be successful in a fundraising pitch, remember that this man or woman is going to go home to their significant other at the end of the week after hearing 100 pitches. And the pitch that wins, the company that they're interested in, is the most interesting one they had a conversation with. Mm-hmm. What was the most interesting conversation they had over the course of that week? Right. That's the one that they're going to tell their significant other about and probably be the most interested in pursuing. It's not going to be the one with the best numbers. Right. Certainly that helps, but it's probably not going to be that. So anyways, in this Google Ventures meeting, we went to the end of it and um, this guy, this young guy raised his hand and he's like, so Sahil, what's the most expensive keyword in the world on Google AdWords? Which is like really not a relevant conversation and not a relevant <laughs> Random question. question, yeah. Yeah, and you know, I think it was because he wanted to like, I think it was like bravado kind of show off. He got like, stumped the founder, like whatever it was. And unfortunately, like I was, you know, I was still pretty new. And so I... I think I handled it poorly. I, I got more defensive than I, mm. like they lead you into getting defensive. And, and right. he wasn't, this isn't one of those where he was testing me. Like he just was. Which they annoying. definitely do, right? They definitely do that too. <laughs> Investors like, are always testing you. Yeah, there's definitely those intentional like tips, like tricks, I guess, mm-hmm. which I also think are kind of silly, but whatever. And so he was not doing it for that reason. He was doing it because he wanted to stump me. And so then, and that was fine. So whatever. So I said something about like, it was an insurance keyword or something like that, which is true but really not a relevant conversation. In the, in the future, what I would, would do is, and I have done, is I just say, hey, I'm not really quite sure why that question matters. Can you please explain, mm-hmm. right? And put it back on them a little bit. and right. Or even say, hey, I don't think that question is relevant to our conversation. So, and then move on. <laughs> right. And then we had the, there was a VP of engineering who's like their engineering specialty team. And he did something that was kind of funny, which I expected, which is anytime you meet with Google, Google will always say, why won't Google just build this? Right. And so his big thing was, why doesn't Google just build what you guys are doing? Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, well, this is like not interesting. So yeah, so that didn't work out. Uh, <laughs> All right. And then, I mean, so as far as, so those are some of the crazy moments that you had. Do you think that fundraising is like a performance? You've got to get in there and you've got to really grab their attention, right? You were talking about them telling their significant other about mm-hmm. the best pitch they've heard all week. How do you make sure that your pitch is the most exciting pitch they've heard all week? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. So yeah, one, I do think it's a little bit, I mean, it should be, I think the most important thing is authenticity. And I think as humans, we all know when someone's not being authentic. So it's not to say that if you're a uh, more introverted person, for example, Mm -hmm. that you go in there and you have to be screaming and yelling and be super high energy. Right, someone you're not, right? Yeah, you shouldn't do that. 
I think that excitement and getting someone excited can be done in many, many different ways. Mm-hmm. For the more introverted, mathematical, or like really in the weeds person, that's impressive to me, right? If someone's really like that, I think that good investors will see that as a really impressive characteristic or trait. Mm-hmm. I'm a very high energy person and like, you know, I always go in very, very high energy. That's just who I am though. I talk at a million miles per hour and I try to get them very excited because I'm very excited about what I'm talking about. And that's just my style. Mm -hmm. But it's also very true to who I am. Mm -hmm. And so I think the most important thing is you get people excited about showing the passion, like whether you're introverted, whether you're quiet, whether you're loud, you shouldn't be doing a company if you're not excited about it. Right. Or if you're not excited about the impact it may make on the world or your industry. And so your job should be just to, I think if you let that excitement come out in whatever way is true to you and authentic to you, mm-hmm. good investors, and I'm prefacing by saying good investors will know that and they'll interpret that as excitement and they'll, they'll get excited too if they're excited about that space or right. that problem that you're solving. Bad investors are like, you can't really optimize for bad investors. And there's right. a lot of bad ones, right? And so you can't really optimize for them, unfortunately. Right. <laughs> so what's something you wish you would have known before you started your business? A lot of things. So there's a lot of things that if I were to start a new company, I would do differently. I think a lot of people ask that, would you do things differently? Right. Would I do ad stage differently? I don't know. But if I were to start a, a new business, I would probably do things differently. So what would you do? So I would definitely, um, in the early days, go slower, actually. Hmm. I know that everyone talks about you have to go really quickly and iterate and you know build like a thousand different things. Right. I think I would have been more methodical and a little bit more careful with what we built, um, how quickly we told ourselves we have to build it in Mm -hmm. because, you know, you rush and you create all these issues and you break things and you have a really poor, shaky foundation. It took us just a few years to even like figure it out. So you don't really like agree with the hurry up and break things thing they're always saying in Silicon Valley. In some contexts, but not Mm -hmm. when you're starting to lay the foundation for a business and what you're trying to build and the way that you want to affect the industry. I think it's important to be thoughtful about that. And I think in rushing, so rushing is different than moving quickly. I do think it's important to, as a startup, you need to be nimble, you need to right. be adaptive, and you do need to move relatively quickly compared to the large conglomerate or big organization. Mm-hmm. But rushing creates a lot of issues. Rushing means you're not being thoughtful, you're hasty on your decision-making, and I think that can lead to a lot of like dominoes that will not be good for you or healthy for your business. And mm-hmm. so that's one of the things I really hope I focus, you know, I wish, I hope that I focus on more so in the future. And then for hiring, going back to hiring, I think it's really important. We, when we started the company, we hired a lot of really, really young, hungry talent. And I'm not saying that's wrong because I was one of them, right? But we optimized for that because of lower cost, but really hungry. So they're going to work really hard, work a lot of hours, and they're very excited. But we didn't hire a lot of pros, like the industry pros who've been around the block, we're like, oh, well, they're an ex big company. They probably, they're not startup people. We have this like stigma against like big company people or people that are like have been in very senior roles. As we've scaled the organization, I think there's a lot of value in adding a few of those people earlier on into your business because it's not so much that they'll be able to guide you on what you should do, mm-hmm. but they'll have a lot of experience on the things you shouldn't do. Right. And cutting out the things you shouldn't do gives you a lot of time back. Mm-hmm. And our scarcest resource is time. Right. And I guess capital, which is a factor of that or function of it. And so I think that those types of hires can really make a difference. And we've started hiring a couple of those like pros and they've been, it's been incredible for the business. Awesome. Yeah. So when have you felt the most defeated and how did you overcome it? How long did it take to get back up? What'd you do? Yeah. I've had, it's been six and a half years. I've had mm-hmm. a lot of really, really, really down moments, like super down. Uh, and they've la- some of them have lasted for like months. You know, I've been out for the count for months where I was just in a really bad mind, like state of mind. I was really negative on the things we were doing. I felt hopeless, I think is the word that I've, more often than not when I feel defeated, I feel hopeless. Mm-hmm. And anytime I feel hopeless is a really bad, it's a bad place to be. Right. Is that from burnout or what was it from? Burnout's a part of it. My co-founder and I often talk about burnout. We ask each other, are you okay? Are you good so far? Do you need to take some time off? But what we've always realized is as founders, even taking like a vacation doesn't do anything for me. Like I get back and they say, oh, you'll be like recharged. There's no recharging. There's like a momentary time off and then you're back and you're back at 100%. Mm -hmm. So we thought that vacations would be good remedies in the beginning and we found out that it's not the case. We still take them because it's good time with our friends and family and whatever, but it doesn't actually like help you. 
I think it goes back to the typical stuff everyone says, but there's a reason why they say it. So I think uh, working out, like exercising has been mm-hmm. super useful, keeps the mind very clear, feel good about yourself. And I think that helps you feel better about the business actually. Mm-hmm. Gives you some space from the organization. I think removing yourself. So I'm kind of going away from the specific example of like where I felt super defeated. There's been many times. Failed fundraising, when our, when the cash in the bank has been really, really low. When we started last year, when we started the year, we had about six months of runway in the bank. Wow. And um, we had a large, you know, pretty large organization. That's okay. Every company gets down to one month in the bank. Mm-hmm. It's very normal and then they raise money. Mm-hmm. But we managed to pull everything. Because of that, we were backed into a corner. And I think some of the most brilliant stuff comes out when you're pushed to adversity. And Mm -hmm. we actually had a six-month runway for 12 months. We changed our business model. We made a lot more money. We changed how we kind of collected money up front versus over month to month. And we were able to basically add 12 months of runway without bringing any additional capital from a VC standpoint into the business. And then that led us to raise more money earlier this year. And so that was a moment where I was super hopeless. But I don't stay hopeless for very long. Mm-hmm. I usually, for whatever reason, have like pretty good resiliency. And mm-hmm. I think my co-founder does too. And so we help one another when we're in those situations. And we kind of just like, I don't know, there's like, there's no option of failure. really. Right, right. And so you just, you can't like sit around and like mope about it. Right. So we just keep going. So I think that's, those are some of the, not very specific examples of where mm-hmm. we've been down and out, but you know, there's the typical, I mean, you lose a big customer, you, you run out of money, you have VCs say you suck and what are you doing with your life right. you've been working on for years. And so all of those are going to knock you down and mm-hmm. you just kind of learn how to, you have to really trust and believe in yourself. Right. And roll with the punches. Yeah. And so what do you do to build that muscle of resiliency? Uh, I think like with anything, you exercise it. Yeah. And so you go, you let yourself go through those moments. You tell yourself that those are just moments, mm-hmm. you know, hopefully. And I, and I'm very fortunate. Like there's nothing about my life where I have a great family. My, my parents are awesome. My sisters are great. We're a super close family. I, you know, I was very fortunate that I didn't come from nothing. Mm-hmm. I'd saved up money and my parents are a good safety net if I ever one day needed that. Not that I have, but so I, I don't have it nearly as hard as some founders have it. Mm-hmm. I think some people come from a situation where it's super, you know, it's, it's, it's like live or die. Yeah. Right. And, and those are, those founders are, I think are, I admire those founders. I think that they're far more impressive than I am. And I think they've, they've had to deal with this stuff way more than I have, mm-hmm. where when there's a really scary situation happening, they have like the next paycheck that they need to do to eat. Right. Whatever. Right. right. So, but I've dealt with my own existential crisis, like crises, like if um, the company were to fail, would I be a failure? You know, what would I do right. next? Like, I don't have a college, you know, high school or college degree. Would I be, you know, would I be out for account? But then you kind of snap out of it, and you right. remember that you have a pretty good life. And yeah, in the grand scheme of things, you just get up and start another thing. Right. That's awesome. So, are there any books that have been helpful for you? So I won't claim to be like an avid scholar. I have read a few books. Uh, really, like read a few books over and over in my life that I think have been really impactful. Mm-hmm. And I don't actually ever read a book end to end. I don't know. I just get, I either I get bored of them or I just like, there's very specific pages that I'm really interested in. And so I do like a few books. There's a, a really small book, like actually physically small book called On Bullshit by this philosopher named Harry G. Frankfurt. And it's just like the art of identifying bullshit. And, you know, my dad gave that to me like a long time ago when I was young and I thought it was a really good book and I still love it. I still recommend it to people. There are a couple of the books that I think are really interesting. Um, I was actually introduced to a, a book of poetry that my dad recommended to me by Rabindranath Tagore. And they're all poems, but they're incredibly meaningful, even in a business sense. Mm -hmm. And he actually, my dad's actually now retired many years ago and he's a professor now at Santa Clara University and he teaches graduate engineering schools, uh, business uh, engineering students, business leadership, which is really hard to teach engineers. Like it's just different, right? Yeah. Business leadership. And so he actually teaches this book of poetry in his class, which is really interesting. He doesn't teach like business books. That's a good one. And then I also really like Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. Mm -hmm. It's a wonderful book. So a few of those have been really good for me, but I I stay away from reading the business books. Yeah. I worry, this is just like a, maybe it's unfounded, but I worry that they're going to condition me. They're going to condition me in certain ways. What do you mean? Like how? Well, so like my theory is that I wrote this like post a long time ago. It's probably really bad, but it's called Remain Clueless. And the idea about it was, Mm -hmm. was, is, you know, when you read these books that have advice, or that have retrospective thinking. Mm-hmm. So a lot of business books, if not basically all of them, mm-hmm. are written retrospectively. Mm-hmm. So after they've gone through a series of events. 
And so in retrospect, we all have 20-20 vision, right? Mm -hmm. So you have to, one, kind of judge what's the true, you know, how true is the recount of the actual story that they're going through or situation. And also just because option, you know, let's say that you went to a decision tree, you got to a moment where you had to make decision A or B. Mm -hmm. In the book, maybe they made decision, they took decision B. Mm -hmm. But it's possible for you when you're in that similar situation, no second we live is identical, right? So you will never be in the same situation, but you'll be in a similar situation. Maybe option A was right. Mm Mm-hmm. And so what I worry about is when you read some of these kind of more prescriptive business books where everyone seems to have figured out, we can't control our minds, right? Our minds are like scary, like they're really hard to control. And we're, none of us are masters of our minds. And so when you're in those situations, you say, well, I just read a book. It's just, it's just background information. I'm not going to listen to it. I'm not going to follow it. But subliminally, you probably will. Mm-hmm. And so for whatever reason, I've like told myself to almost like uh, remain naive in some cases. And, and to be fair, if I had done too much research before starting ad stage, I don't know if I would have started it. Really? Why is that? Because it's like we we got into this ridiculous market. This, you know, the marketing technology market's crazy. Right. I didn't know it was gonna be six and a half years before we really started to like kind of how long did you think it was gonna be? Like six months. Oh man, in my pitch deck I said we're gonna start making a million dollars in like six months and like we're gonna do X, Y, and Z. And so I think for me, my co-founder and I joke about it all the time. Because if we knew what we know now, like maybe we wouldn't have gotten in the space. We love that we're in the space and we mm-hmm. think that we can make a huge impact in it. But it's a really hard space. Mm-hmm. And so, but because we were so naive, because we didn't know all the intricacies of the product or the space, we kind of like, I don't know, just blindly went for it. We were kind of like, because we were naive, we were just like, oh, right. we'll do this, no problem. Right. And we tackle these like big, meaty problems that are super hard. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. <laughs> so you're trying to stay naive. Yeah, I would really love to if I can in many ways. Yeah, I agree with that in a lot of in a lot of aspects. Let's talk about advertising. Since mm-hmm. you're such a pro, an expert, and you always are speaking on panels about digital marketing and stuff like that. What kind of tips can you give to some of the founders out there listening? Yeah, so advertising is changing. Mm-hmm. It's huge. It's one of the largest industries in the world. You have the United States kind of leads in terms of advertising dollars. And then you have, I think, Japan's the second largest market and, and so on. So it's a global market. And understanding it from a global purview is really important. Knowing that it's incredibly quick. It's a very, very fast market. It's changing all the time. So what I tell people when they're getting into digital and they're trying to understand if they should, you know, what they should do, I recommend a few different resources. There's marketingland.com, for example. Kind of all the how-to and help resources is what I recommend people to do and pay attention to it every day because there's always a new announcement. There's always a new product, new tool, new way to advertise, new way to measure. What I would tell most folks is that advertising and what we call paid marketing is just obviously part of, if you have a really good head of marketing or a good head of demand generation, they'll tell you that obviously paid is just a part of your strategy. Mm -hmm. Surprisingly, there have been some businesses, I'll put an asterisk there, because there have been some businesses, like we call them micro brands, you know, on Facebook. Like uh, we have a couple that are awesome customers, like um, like Movement Watches and, you know, the, all the mattress companies at like Casper yeah. and Purple and whatever. And they we call them micro brands, which are like single product brands, mm-hmm. like e-commerce brands. And some of these companies, it's like amazing. They were able to figure out Facebook ads yeah. and turn figure out how to turn a dollar into 10. Mm-hmm. Their core strategy, their marketing strategy, their business strategy, was Facebook ads, right? Mm-hmm. How to run Facebook ads at scale efficiently, Dollar Shave Club, like a lot of the earlier kind of like on-demand and um, curated kind of boxes and stuff. It was all advertising-led strategies because advertising is a very, very quantitative way to figure out if you can turn a dollar into $10. I put mm-hmm. $1 in and I get $10 out from like a lifetime value LTV standpoint. Right. And if you can figure out that equation, you can grow mm-hmm. very, very quickly. So that's what excites me about advertising. But in order to figure out that equation, that's when the instrumentation, the measurement, you know, the the domain expertise does come into play. A-B testing of different ads. All of that of, stuff. Yeah. And it's super deep. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, paid marketing used to be like one person in the corner of an office back in the day. And what they did was they drove leads. Mm-hmm. That was a core mandate. It's entirely changing now. I think, and this company thinks, you know, our mission is to empower marketers to succeed. And specifically, we want, we believe that the paid marketer or the paid market organization is rising mm-hmm. in importance and value to these organizations, right? Because everyone's figuring out, wow, these, these folks can figure out how to turn a dollar into 10. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you're any CEO, you're gonna, that's a goldmine if you can figure right. it out. And so we think that the paid market organization is rising to the top. 
marketing used to be seen as a cost center in organizations and businesses. They're now seen as the revenue driving center. And in fact, most, a lot of CMOs now are turning into what they call CROs, right? Chief revenue officers. And it's sales plus marketing. We even have, we have a weekly meeting at the company called Smarketing, which where our sales <laughs> and marketing teams meet just to collaborate. Mm-hmm. So digital advertising is a part of the strategy. It's an incredibly effective part of the strategy if you can figure it out. And it's something that is becoming really, really important to have figured out. I think I get emails every single day from fellow founders saying, do you know a good digital marketer I can hire? Yeah. And what's your answer? I'll keep an eye out. <laughs> like, tell us where to find them. Yeah, I'll keep an eye out. And, and I do post it up and I try to help out. But yeah, they're super in demand. Just as like, in my opinion, just as in demand as like engineers in Silicon Valley, which we know is like very, very high demand. Right. It's crazy. Yeah. Where's the future of advertising going? That is a good question. I think that advertising is becoming, so we have so many different devices we're spending our time on. We're always connected. We all know this stuff. I actually tell people that, you know, one of my favorite movies from like a, from a social impact standpoint is like WALL-E, the old, you know, I think it was a Pixar or Disney movie. Yeah. And we're very much becoming that, right? All these on-demand services and ordering everything. And all of these services we use are inputs that advertisers can use to target. It's data that they can then use to better know the consumer Mm -hmm. and to target. Advertising is getting, as we all know from the conversations, is getting into a very interesting world where it's a little scary, we're allowed to track a lot more data, but it's highly effective and it can be used for good and it can be used for evil, which we've always kind of known. And as we start to invent new technologies or further existing technologies like VR and AR, you're going to have different ways to consume content and therefore different ways to consume advertising. You have these AI you know, products like Alexa and Google Voice or whatever, Google Now or whatever it's called. And they're all figuring out ways to come up with voice ads right? Or voice deals. And you have, I mean, I think I always tell people like, I love Batman and, you know, Batman has like in the the Wayne Tower at the very bottom, he has that huge R&D lab where he has all these like cool gadgets and stuff. I would love as to become so big that one day I'll have like a little R&D lab where I can just sit down there and like build really cool stuff for the future. And like, I think that pretty soon we're going to have like embedded computers, right? Like we're going to have devices that are, you know, forget wearables. We're going to have embedded devices. Mm -hmm. And those are all going to be transmitted. You mean like inner skin? Yeah. Or like in our brain and like tied to like. Would you really get something like a chip in your skin? If the value is there, I don't know. What if it makes me like super cool? That would hurt. I mean, I'm sure it would hurt, but if the value exchanges there, I would definitely do it. What's the value? What if the value is like, let's say that God forbid, but I had like some sort of ailment. I like diabetes. Mm. The value is that it's going to exchange. It's going to pump insulin that I need when I need it, like sugar to to balance Mm. my sugar levels. For that person, there's a high value exchange, right? It's worth the pain. Yeah, But then they also have medical data on when they're getting insulin and how often they're getting insulin. And so with every type of convenience exchange that we go through as consumers, we're forfeiting some of our data and some of our privacy. I'm okay with that. I'm a big advocate that our privacy is a thing of the past. It's probably going to go away. It's not a popular opinion. It's certainly a scary opinion. Yeah, I kind of agree with you. <laughs> but like, fading. you know, I had, I had people come by the office and then we had this huge conversation about it. And I said, well, you know, they, about half the off, you know, half the group of like 30 or 40 people raised their hand and said they want to protect the privacy. The other half agreed that privacy is kind of gone. Mm-hmm. The ones that raised their hand, I asked them, I said, okay, interesting. Do any of you guys have Netflix or Birchbox or Instacart or like whatever, all these on-demand services? And they all raised their hand. Right. I was like, that's interesting. So for a convenience exchange, you know that you've given, you've told them when you shave, you right. told them when you eat, what you eat, all these different things. But for a certain level of convenience exchange, you're okay with doing that. Mm-hmm. And so that was a really interesting kind of conversation. And I think we're all starting to realize that. Mm -hmm. And I guess that there would be situations where I maybe wouldn't want people to know like medical history or I don't know, I don't have anything. So it's like, fine. (laughs) But if I did, would, would I not want people to know it? And I don't know, it's, it's not even so much about if I want them to know it or not. I think it's just a fun thought exercise to think about. Let's imagine you wake up tomorrow and privacy is a thing of the past. Right. As humans, what do we do? We're highly adaptive. We're not going to just croak over and die and be like, oh my God, this is chaos. We'll still adapt. So what mm-hmm. would the world look like in a world where privacy was gone? And not just the negatives. What are some of the positives that we could derive? Mm-hmm. And I think that's a really fun exercise to, you know, to think about. But it does scare people, for sure. Yeah. What do you think are the negatives and positives? I Probably a lot of the negatives are things you see in Black Mirror. Yeah. Right? I think they show, it's a really intriguing show where they show a lot of kind of mm-hmm. technology that's so close it's believable. 
and the negative impacts it can have. Yeah. I think that show is all about the negative impact of technology advancements and things like privacy. And it's admittedly really scary. Yeah. I think the positives are like a super interconnected, you know, like every device knows what you need at the given second that you need it, you know, knows all your tastes and flavors or whatever. Just just all this kind of customization around the person and the individual, Mm -hmm. not just a human, but the actual unique individual that would make life really interesting, really easy. You know, there's a lot of convenience that could be extracted from that. Uh, You can get the right services delivered to you at the right time. You don't even have to call them. Right, like imagine something's like tied into your body and knows when you're hungry. Like there's there's so many different things that could happen. <laughs> or you walk into your apartment and this thing like scans you and can tell you that you're healthy or you need vitamin B or whatever. You totally. Know? And yeah. those things can be like hugely beneficial or they can, you know, they can detect early onset of cancer mm-hmm. or whatever. But with those, we have to exchange some level of our privacy in order to, you know, to leverage that, in mm-hmm. order to get the value from it. And I think that's where people are still figuring out what they're willing to give up for the convenience. Right. And I, my suspicion is it's slowly, as more like really interesting things come out, we're willing to give up more and more for that convenience. Yeah, definitely. Um, it'll happen over a very long period of time. And it happens so easily. I mean, it's a click of a button, agree to terms. You know? Yeah. So you do it with your eyes closed, basically. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So what's next for AdStage? So in the immediate term, we have a new product coming out in a few weeks, which we're very excited about. Can you talk about it? Yeah. So we believe that, uh, kind of what I explained before, right? Mm -hmm. If you're running a Facebook ad campaign, and let's say you're a B2B company, like Mm -hmm. a software company, like AdStage, you don't care if your ad gets clicked on. Not really. I mean, obviously that has to happen. But what you care about is does the person who clicked on that ad, do they eventually turn into a sales qualified lead Mm -hmm. in Salesforce? Do they turn into close one revenue, right? And those systems don't talk to one another today. They don't have any real communication. You can do it, but it's all manually done in like a spreadsheet. Mm-hmm. So we're building a product that will automate connecting what we call your down funnel metrics data. Examples of that are your Google Analytics data, your like conversion data, your sales pipeline data, mm-hmm. back to your ad campaign data. Mm-hmm. So now you can see if a Facebook campaign drove 10 sales qualified leads in the last three months. Nice. Or 20. And you can then optimize properly based on the true kind of what we call the closed loop story. Mm-hmm. So really excited about that. It's kind of the very short term. We've been working on it for a very long time and it's just a few weeks away. So fingers crossed on that. Outside of it, just continue to grow the business and hiring really great people and we'll see what happens. I think we we try to really refrain from planning more than three months out. Mm-hmm. And um, I've really worked hard as a founder to, to take things one day at a time, which is like incredibly difficult. Yeah. And nine times out of 10, I can't do that, but I, right. I'm pushing myself to do it. So I don't know beyond kind of the <laughs> next three months of you know roadmap uh, what we're going to do and where the company will be and what state we'll be in, but I hope, I hope good. Awesome. So one last thing, what advice do you have for aspiring entrepreneurs? I know you've already shared a lot of advice. So mm-hmm. I think the core takeaway would be around, again, not rushing, take your time, be methodical and thoughtful, which is very counter to, I think, a lot of the things we learn in the Silicon Valley. Yeah, it is. But it's a long-term game. This is all yeah. a long-term play. And we're making everything seem like it needs to be short-term quick. And and that creates a lot of issues. Mm-hmm. The best companies in the world today have been around for a very long time. Think about, I'm not talking about tech companies. Think about the big CPG brands like Coca-Cola. Mm-hmm. These companies have been around, they've survived many recessions. They've survived tons of economic you know, tumult. They've pivoted a thousand times and they've still survived because they focused on a foundation. Now they did have good product and good mm-hmm. product is super important, but they've been willing to iterate and change. They have a culture that promotes longevity, not just short-term thinking. Mm-hmm. And I think fundamentally understanding that and setting yourself up, building a foundation. Now for a startup founder, long-term, maybe a year. And that's okay too. But don't just think about, you know, you get a lot of advice from investors that says, hey, you got to make revenue next month. Yeah, where's the revenue? Where's, where's the, the revenue? revenue? Yeah. And you over-optimize. And the problem is yeah. then you start making some money, but you didn't plan a growth foundation. You didn't have any sort of foundation of growth. And so three months later, you've now been making revenue and you plateau. Yep. Because you didn't think about what do you do after three months? How <laughs> can this grow beyond the first couple thousand dollars of revenue? Right. So that's where I think taking your time, I do think planning and, and you know being thoughtful and methodical is important. So that's the first. And then, yeah, surround yourself with really, really amazing people. 
And the cliche thing is just enjoy the journey. So those are the things I'd probably just remind founders to, to do. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Appreciate everything you had to say and sharing your story. And yeah. My pleasure. Fun. Do you have anything else you want to add? I think that's it. I'm <laughs> sure we could go on for hours and hours and hours, yeah. but I think for now that's probably the things that are top of mind today and it'll change tomorrow. Yeah, definitely. Thanks. Thanks, Lee. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. If you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at stairwaytoceo at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends and leave us a review. Until next time, keep on climbing. Keep on climbing.